the reason for that is, is that most of them came from constituents. Somebody who showed up at my store, called my phone and said, hey, Dan, I'm having problems with something. Do you have time to sit down and talk about it? That's what you need to be sending to Washington. Doesn't matter if they're R, doesn't matter if they're D, doesn't matter if there's an I behind their name, it shouldn't matter. You need to put those people in office because those are the people that are gonna work for you. Welcome back to the Interview Podcast on the Wine Milbank Podcast Network here in Milbank, South Dakota. I'm Craig Weinberg, and sitting uh, on this show today with me, um, all the way from Del Rapids. That's right, Dan Allers. Um, welcome to the uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, thanks for thanks for coming up here, um, giving us some of your time. Um, you are from? Are you a native South Dakota? Yes, I actually born in Del Rapids. Um, I lived a little bit of my childhood in Rapid City. Um, my dad lost his job in the early 80s, um, and we ended up living in Gillette, Wyoming. I moved back uh, my senior year of high school to help my grandparents out in Del Rapids, and I've been there pretty much ever since. What do you do? Well, I was a, I've been a small business owner for about 20 years. My first business, uh, which was... Um, the one that I, uh, I own the longest was video plus in Del Rapids. I own one of the last video stores in South Dakota. Uh, it so, was, how was that as the transition to Netflix happened? Well, the crazy part is, is I actually started my business two after two years after Netflix already existed. Really? Uh, and I watched uh, Netflix change their f- business model three times in the 20 years that mm-hmm. I owned my business, you know, one of the reasons for, for starting is I saw a need in my community and I, I, I like giving back and I wanted to do something on my own. And, you know, people said, well, it couldn't be done. But when it comes down to it, you know, people are looking for good service and, and, and uh, someone that can help them satisfy whatever they're looking for. And that's what I offered. It was really more than just a video store. It was a place where you come in, have a conversation, um, and you get a little ownership of what you're taking home with you mm-hmm. uh, because we have uh, a conversation yeah. about uh, what your interests are, uh, what, 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 do you, what do you want to take home with you tonight to make this evening the most enjoyable possible. And you have some really great conversations. You learn a lot about people. And that's really why people kept going in. We were actually uh, gaining customers. You know, we hit the plateau and then we dipped a little you know, as the industry changed. But then the last couple of years, we were actually gaining. Had it not been for the studios deciding not to sell to us anymore, I'd probably still was be Was that really the, the cause? Yeah. Like, they just didn't produce the, the hardware? Is that the issue? Well, what was what was happening is uh, c- uh, companies like Disney, mm-hmm. who control about 60% of the market, decided uh, one day, we're not going to sell direct to your distributors anymore, uh, which makes it hard to get product. Right. And I would, uh, you know, I would go to places like Target and Best Buy to kind of fill the gaps in. This had been going on for about four months. So you were buying retail price just to have it on hand? Just to have it on hand. Wow. And, well, then uh, those stores weren't getting them on time either. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and after about four months of that, I, I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm working harder to keep this 
uh, going for an industry that no longer wants me around. Mm -hmm. It's like being a farmer, but nobody wants to sell you seed corn. And it it just told me that it was time to be done and to start a new chapter. What did the community do when you decided to be done? I mean, was it like, yeah, we saw it coming just with the way the world went? Or was Um, there a, a hole that got created? It was certainly a hole. In fact, there's rarely a day that I go by that the store isn't brought up and people tell you, tell you how much they miss it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know they're not watching movies the way they once did uh, because they don't even know what what's out or what's new. And, um, you know, it's, it's great. I left at the right time because it was going to be to a point where you couldn't provide that service anymore. And then it does become, uh, you know, the, the customer looking at you going, yeah, you couldn't get it done anymore. Mm-hmm. It was probably time. Instead, I left them wanting more, which mm-hmm. is probably the best way to do it. Yeah, you're right. It's better for them to be, man, I wish that was open still. Then why is he still open? <laughs> exactly. Um, do you see that ever coming back like uh, the, the vinyl record store is trying to make a, a comeback? You know, or will that not happen in, as long as the big box or the big uh, studios are still in charge. Yeah, it would be awfully tough. I think that uh, they've gone a different direction than the music industry. I mean, there's there's certainly parallels and correlations, but the nostalgia mm-hmm. of the record and vinyl uh, seems to have taken a whole different um, uh, taken hold in a whole different way. Uh, I I don't know that it it will. It doesn't mean it couldn't, but. I, I don't foresee that happening just because of the way the industry's moving. Yeah. So you said uh, before we started this that uh, you also had a coffee shop? Yes. Uh, yeah, in 2006, I bought a couple of historical buildings on, in my hometown on, on Main Street, and I renovated those, and in one of them I started a coffee shop, the Jabberwock. <laughs> I, I owned that for several years. And Is it still there now? Uh, it is still a coffee shop. And a young couple owns it and rents from me. Um, as I've gotten older, and and I say a little wiser, <laughs> that it, it was a a good plan not to be running and and multiple businesses on your own, mm-hmm. especially in small towns. It's very difficult. You you stretch yourself thin. And uh, a really nice young couple owns it right now. They're doing a fantastic job. They're good tenants, and I get paid and all i have to do is unplug a toilet every once in a while maybe fix that's a, the way to do it yeah nice. f- fix a yeah. fix a door or something yeah. so it's it's uh it's good and we you know we still have that business in town which is really important to me yeah that's cool uh has del rapids um how far from sioux falls is that we're about 15 to 17 miles depending so th- on which way that kind of makes it a sleeper community right for sioux falls it could be. You know, one of the things that Del Rapids has that a lot of the small towns around it don't have is we have a hospital, we have an eye clinic, a dentist, mm-hmm. a medical clinic, a full grocery store, an Ace Hardware, you know, Dollar General, a movie theater. Uh, we have a lot of the amenities that you wouldn't necessarily see in one of those bedroom communities. Mm-hmm. So there is still an identity there. And we split, uh, we're split between Brookings and Sioux Falls, so we're a spot where people may go to work other places. But the wonderful thing about Dell's is that it's been growing at a nice, steady pace that it offers jobs locally, too, and good-paying jobs. Yeah, that is cool. So people can stay there and travel if need to, need be still, yeah. 
Um, do you have any kids? Do you have family? I have a, a wife, Amy. We've been uh, married since 98. Oh, good work. Uh, <laughs> dating since 91. <laughs> uh, wow. And uh, we yeah, we just had our, our 22nd wedding anniversary, and uh, we have two boys. Uh, Jackson's 13, and Aaron is 9, and they both go to school in Del Rapids. Very cool. <clears throat> How has uh, being down there, um, what has this COVID thing done to the community? that you live in it's it's tough i mean uh, i'm certainly not built for it i'm a social person someone who likes being out talking to people that's why i owned a small business um it is uh it has been a, a divisive issue so you have you know one side or the other uh you know mask no mask you you see things uh, and people are um disappointed and and uh, have learned more about one another than maybe they would have liked to have known. I think uh, <laughs> that's a it, great way to put it. <laughs> it yeah, it's um, you, you're, you're seeing um, uh, some hostilities and, and uh, politicizing of, of this that probably shouldn't be there. You know, from an economic side, it has, um, it has been tough, but being the chamber president in our hometown and and seeing this coming down the road, we did a little anticipation of what could possibly happen. We worked closely with our businesses mm -hmm. and our city government, and we were a little bit ahead of the curve. You know, we went in and, um, you know, visited with a lot of our businesses, especially the ones that we knew could be really impacted, the restaurants and, and bars and, and stuff like that. Rely on walk-in traffic. Right, yeah. that rely heavily on that walk-in mm -hmm. traffic where internet sales might not necessarily work. And we were, we were ahead of the curve even before Sioux Falls. We had carry-out parking spaces on Main Street. I went to our city administrator and said, hey, can we do this? He said, absolutely. So then you get back to your businesses and say, mm -hmm. okay, this is what we're going to do right here. Now um, I want you to tell me what you want to highlight about your business. Are you going to, if you're a restaurant, are you going to run specials? If you're a children's clothing store or a toy store or a women's clothing store, what are you going to be doing that we can highlight and then put on social media and help promote you? So we were really active in that. I was uh, calling or, or contacting our banks and asking about the, the payroll protection program, even before the rules were written. In fact, the rules weren't even written when you could apply for the, yeah. the grant. So you wanted to get a yeah. feel, though, of which banks were going to be working with your small businesses. And that's where we directed our small business owners. And if it wasn't a bank that they worked with, I found out, I, I, you know, I asked them, do you have an accountant? If you have an mm -hmm. accountant, go through your accountant. You know, just making sure that they were prepared as much as we could possibly prepare them for what was coming and to help them through the process any way we could. So so is that the proper role of a chamber, you think? I think so. I think it's, uh, you know, uh, we're there to promote our community, mm -hmm. uh, to protect our community, to help help uh, businesses innovate, to help reach your customers and let the people in the community know what's out there for them and why it's important for them to support local. Right. How long have you been uh, interested in politics? Oh, gosh. Uh, since about the eighth grade. I had two, really? two civics teachers that team taught a class, <laughs> and they were so passionate about government, American government, and American history. Uh, I was really probably headed towards a more science uh, type of job. 
uh, medicine. I had a, an interest in uh, chemistry, uh, astronomy. Uh, I, I was really good with the science and math classes. So uh, I was headed in that direction. And here these two guys come along and kind of convince me that, hey, there's a there's an opportunity where there's a, a you know, this group of people that had this idea uh, about forming a country and really turn the world upside down with this concept of, uh, of a new republic and the opportunity to have that kind of impact and have that kind of input. And anyone could be part of the process. It was pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. And uh, my, my, uh, opportunity came in 2006. In fact, right after I bought my building, <laughs> of course, <laughs> and we found out we were expecting our first kid. I, I have uh, the the uh, South Dakota Democratic Party approached me and said, "Hey, you know, we have a space to fill here. Uh, someone backed out. Um, we'd like to, we'd like you to put your name on the ballot." They said, "Don't worry, you won't win anyways." And that well, was, boy, that's a vote of confidence for yeah, you. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we and I do I did serve in a very conservative district, uh, but I took that as a challenge and I won that first election, and uh, went to the South Dakota State Legislature. Mm -hmm. Wow. And then are are you currently there? No, okay. no. Uh, my last year was 2018. And so that would have been term limited out, correct? No, I or wasn't no? term limited. No. Because what what is that? I can't remember. Well, there, the there's eight years. Our term limits here aren't real term limits. Most of them hop between houses, so they'll they'll. You just can't spend so more than a certain amount of time in each house. Yep, eight years, side. and then they can bounce over the other house. They can serve two to eight years. They can bounce right back to the other house. Well, that's kind of stupid. Yeah, it's not real term limits. Should it be? Um, I go back and forth. There is a natural turnover in our mm -hmm. state legislature of about thirty percent. The one thing I will say is that there are some that when they reach that eight years, they're done and and they, and they walk away from it. And I think that's good. I what what is what I've seen as a decline from the time I was an intern before term limits had really had its impact mm -hmm. to the time that I was in the legislature myself is you see a decline in leadership. Yeah. And when you're trying to balance the other two branches of government, you're at a real disadvantage when you're a part-time legislature with a minimal staff of maybe two dozen people. And, and and that allows the executive branch and lobbyists to have more control and more power. So I, I teeter back and forth on it. Um, I've always believed that the best term limits are voting. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> so now you are uh, currently running um, against Senator Rounds, correct? That's correct. Um why in the world did you do that? Well, you know, uh, if you'd have told me <laughs> at the time I decided to close my store that, yeah. you know, six, seven months later, I was going to be announcing my uh, run for U.S. Senate, I'd have laughed at you. But I, I continue, I was, you know, we'd had several government shutdowns but at this point. There was so much fighting and finger pointing going on in Washington, and it, it just gets exhausting. And there, there are real people with real problems and real needs that need to be met. And you have these folks sitting out there that seem completely out of touch. And when I went to Pierre, I'm not going to tell you that it wasn't partisan, that there weren't uh, issues and problems, but I worked really hard there to help bridge those gaps, to cross party lines and find ways to get things done. Mm -hmm. 
Because when it comes down to it, the issues of uh, affordable health care, a strong economy, and a quality education, they're not Republican or Democrat issues. They're people issues. And if you can break it down and keep it simple, if you can find the areas where you can agree, then you can start building a, a plan or legislation to help achieve those goals. And you can do it together. And really doing it together is the only way to have lasting change. If we've learned anything from the, the, the these past two administrations, uh, one got fed up with the process, started passing everything by executive order. The current administration undoes everything with executive order. Mm-hmm. So what was really accomplished? Right. Have we done anything in the last 12 years that has really mattered uh, to the American people that has had a positive impact? How do you fix that, though, at the national level? Well, that's, that's always the question you get in the challenge. you got to send the right people there. you got to send people that are willing to work at it. Uh, that understand that the most important uh, job out there is to represent the people that elected you. If you keep it that simple, you can have a tremendous amount of success. And you can't forget who you are and lose yourself in the moment. Um, I, the best example of that is I spent most of my time on appropriations. I could have been uh, in leadership. I could have been a minority leader or assistant minority leader. I chose to work where I could have the most mm-hmm. impact, and that was putting together the state's budget because I knew that where we invested our dollars and how we invested them would have a lasting, meaningful impact, yeah. more than any words that I could say standing up at a microphone on the floor of the House or the Senate. So, I mean, that that is how I work, and I believe that uh, someone like me in Washington uh, can be good for the process because I'm not afraid to walk over uh, to somebody on the opposite side of the aisle and say, hey, nice to meet you. I'm Dan Ollers. Um, we should get a cup of coffee or go have dinner sometime. We, have, I think we have a lot in common with between our two states. Let's have a conversation. I know that whatever that mm-hmm. issue might be that we talk about uh, could be beneficial uh, to both of our states. And I think if you can do that, um, if you can have those conversations, then you can start changing things in Washington. It used to happen. The, the, the notion that it can happen, <clears throat> you can go back to the days of George McGovern and Bob Dole. Opposite sides of the aisle. Two World War II veterans. Two World War II veterans that saw a need and were able to work together to get things done. When you look at the food programs in this country, you have Bob Dole and George McGovern to thank. <laughs> really? Because they were able, mm-hmm. and, and, and they went global. These guys went global with these food programs. And they were able to work together, get past whatever minor differences they had to better this country. You can go to Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill. Opposite ends of the spectrum found ways to work together and get things done. You can go to Trent Lott and Tom Daschle. They found ways to work together and get things done. So what changed? Why can't they do that now? <clears throat> I think because people are more concerned of, uh, and parties are more concerned about winning and power than what their actual job is. And that is what happens when people, and, and, and it's it's happened over time, people have uh, not engaged in the process. They're fed up with politics. They're fed up with their elected officials. But if you don't participate, it doesn't get any better. It only gets worse because now you have fewer people voting who control what happens mm-hmm. to everyone else. Mm-hmm. 
And those fewer people are often not representative of the country as a whole. They're people with money and people with power. And they're going to like people that are going to benefit their interests, not our interests. So is that not the a good uh, sales pitch for term limits in Congress <laughs> to, to kind of force some turnover? I Yeah. You know, I, like you said, I've kind of grown uh, closer towards it over the years, mm -hmm. seeing what I've seen. Um, I still think that it doesn't solve the problem of people not engaging the process and people have to have faith in the process. Does that engagement need to happen at the state level primarily? Or, or does it need to be at the federal level? I think if it starts at the local level, mm -hmm. it moves over into the national level. I mean, when you think about how I was elected, uh, I, was a, I was a Democrat in a very conservative district. People didn't look at me and go, Dan the Democrat. People knew me as a businessman. I was Dan the movie man. Mm -hmm. And that, while that might sound silly, there was a personal connection and a relationship there. So when people went out to vote, for me, it was because of that personal connection. Can you do that at the national level, though? I think so. Can, can you actually look beyond <clears throat> the party label? A absolutely. How? I, I, it's so polarized, isn't it? It is, but I've never been that way. Mm -hmm. In fact, the National Democratic Party has never called me to thank me for running. They've never sent a single <laughs> cent my way to my campaign. Um, if anything, that should reassure... Uh, Democrats, Republicans, and independents out there and whatever other party that they're a member of, that I only work for them. You don't have to worry about anybody having any undue influence because I don't owe any of those special interests anything. The only people I owe are the people that, that, that put me in office. How do you keep it that way? It's just... Uh, like, is it... Because in talking to, you know, I've, I've had a chance to talk with Mike Rounds and... Uh, Dusty Johnson, both, and in talking to the you know them because they've had the chance to be out in Washington, uh, and then I've read books from other um, Congress people at this at the U.S. level, and it's fascinating because no none of them start out entrenched almost or very few, most of them start out like you do you know home hometown grassroots people matter. And then it feels like as you get into that national level, you don't have a choice but to get a, to lose that. How do you not lose that? I think it's about the choices that we make along the way. And, uh, well, not going into Mike, but when you, when you look at my opportunities mm -hmm. as a state legislator, there were numerous times where the Republican Party and Republican legislators said, Dan, why don't you become a Republican? You could be in peer for as long as you want. You could do, you know, you'd be guaranteed, uh, you know, and you could move up and do all these different things. You get all these promises. But I didn't choose that path. I chose a very hard path. Why? Because I don't want to lose who I am. I don't know. It, so you can get all the, the glitz and the glamour. You can have all that extra stuff that comes with it, all these perks or whatever. But if you lose who you are, mm -hmm. then what does it mean? If you have to give pieces of yourself up, I mean, I'm not wired that way. 
if I was interested in money, I wouldn't have been a small business owner in Del <laughs> right. Rapids. No. <laughs> and I wouldn't have owned a video right. store. If I was interested in the political power, I would have become a Republican, and I'd still be serving in the state legislature right now and, and most likely be in leadership. Um, but I, there, those things come at a cost. And I've watched my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, uh, some of them very good people, who have had to sacrifice a little bit of themselves just to maintain where they're at and not get tossed out or have somebody run run in a primary against them. I've seen it happen over and over and over again. So how do you, um, let's, you know, looking forward, if you get, uh, you happen to win, how do you go into the National Democratic Party, Democratic Party and not become just another number that's a rubber stamp for their entire agenda. And I'm, I, I don't know, is their agenda the agenda you stand for, like the fully? No, I, I don't subscribe to any particular party agenda completely. I think both parties have good ideas. Do you have to, though, at the national level? if you are, Do you almost have to be one or the other, or else you become a Joe Lieberman in the middle? I, I think that um, when people do that, when they subscribe to one side or the other, if you give in to that, then you just become part of the problem. And I think that if you can work closely with colleagues on both sides of the aisle, you can build coalitions to make things happen. Uh, I, I did it in peer, you know, working with uh, Democrats and Republicans together, sometimes against the will of leadership. You just have to have the political courage to do it. Um, if I didn't think I could, I wouldn't be running. <laughs> yeah. And if I get there and I find out six years from now that I couldn't, then I walk away. Um, I don't, um, I, I, I guess I, I don't have, you will never hear me say what uh, my opponent said when he was talking about the Judge Merrick Garland appointment. He said it was a directive from leadership. He tried to pass it off as a leadership's problem, mm -hmm. but he didn't have to listen. He chose to follow orders. I don't work for party leadership. I've made headlines as a state legislator voting against my own leadership's bill in a committee and help sending it to the to the the, the uh, legislative graveyard. So if I'm willing to do it mm -hmm. there or he, or here, I'm willing to do it there. I don't have any problems with that, and I'm not worried about the political repercussions because I'm not there to score points with leadership. I'm there to do a job, and that's represent South Dakota. Um. Do you think walking in as a freshman senator, um, how do you go up against Chuck Schumer, who's the leader, um, and say, nope, well, I'm not going to play that along there because we need to do it this way? How do you do that when they are so entrenched? And I heard uh, Nancy Pelosi say a couple years ago, I think it was 18, um, that our system is based on seniority. Because there was, a, there was a question whether it maybe would be time for her to step aside for some younger uh, Democrats to come up and, and take the, the helm. And her response was, it's based on seniority. And so when you have seniority, you have more say. Well, Chuck Schumer has that same thought. And so, and I think Mitch McConnell has the same thought. They all do because they've been there forever. Um, how do you go as a brand new person, come in and say, no, we're going to do something else? It seems like that could be really difficult because it doesn't seem like many people can do it. It comes down to being prepared 
and being a voice of reason, but also knowing the rules. The people that know the rules control the process. Yeah, and those old guys know the rules. <laughs> well, they know I, I, some of the rules. Right. I think sometimes that we, we overestimate. There yeah. were a number of times that I pulled legislative uh, strategic moves in the legislature, mm-hmm. I did, even my first year, and they're like, how did you even know that rule existed? Because I sat down and I read <laughs> it's them. It's preparation. And, 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 yeah. and you, you learn that if it wasn't in our little red rule book that it was Mason's rules. Mm-hmm. I, I still remember stumping, um, well, he was Lieutenant Governor Dugard then. I stumped him on the floor of the, the Senate on a Mason's rule procedure because I coaxed, um, we were having a debate uh, on the floor. I had a bill that I needed to, it's a strange conversation called Striking the Knot. And it was so that we could have an open dis- discussion on a bill that I was forcing to the floor. Mm-hmm. And it had a do not pass recommendations. You have to strike the knot. Well, I talked to my leadership, convinced them because he was a lawyer to to give the opening speech. He goes, well, why don't you do it? He th- I said, because I need to speak afterwards. And, mm-hmm. I, and I explained to him why. So I got who better to talk about striking a knot, which you can't strike, you can't talk about the merits of the bill. So you're talking about why they need to vote for the bill without getting into why they should vote for the bill. <laughs> so why not have a lawyer do it, right? <laughs> right. So uh, he, uh, our leader gets up and he has a conversation, draws my opponent up, and my opponent starts talking about the merits of the bill. And I knew he would. Because I just, I knew how he, I, I studied his behavior. I knew how he would react. And as soon as he did that, he opened the floor up to a full debate, regardless of the fact that we hadn't stri- stri- stricken the knot. And I remember that, Gov- uh, well, Lieutenant Governor Dugard at the time gaveled it down and said, I, you know, I don't, uh, he ruled it not germane to the title of the bill or whatever. The, and I stood up immediately and invoked Mason's rules. And I said, this rule, this page states that once one engages, oh, then it's open. Then it's open, <laughs> and he's like stunned, and the whole gallery is like, ooh. I mean, and, and I wasn't the senior. Uh, mm-hmm. I wasn't the senior legislator. Um, I was not the leader. You just have to have an understanding and appreciation for the process, and make that process work for you. And if you can build trust with members on both sides of the aisle. There are more of them than there are of the leadership. Very true. <clears throat> um, let's talk about the Supreme Court. What are your thoughts on the current scenario? Well, I don't like the double standard uh, where we had... Anthony Scalia, who passed away eight to nine months prior to the election, and they weren't going to hold it, saying it, we needed to respect the vote of the, the people and wait for the next uh, president. That Okay, that's fine. But now here we're, we were six weeks out, Ruth uh, Bader Ginsburg passes away, and now all of a sudden they're going to rush a process because it serves their agenda. Um, I don't like the politicization. Uh, if they'd have done the same thing as they'd done prior I mean, if, if it had been ha- handled the same way, I may not have liked it, but I would have accepted it. Um, you know, if they would moved to, to get it through uh, for Merrick Garland and now we were doing the same thing uh, for President Trump's nomination, 
may not have liked it, but at least they would have held the same standard. Here, we have a double standard. From both sides, though, isn't it? Right. Haven't they both just flipped sides of the game? Well, the the only thing that's changed is, is, well, actually the Republicans were in the majority in the Senate then, too. But they didn't have the White House. They didn't have the White House. I mean, that's the only thing Mm -hmm. that's changed. Well, and um, Obama was not, he was term limited out. Right. So there was going to be a new president no matter right. what. Right. So someone was going to be elected. But but the the basis of it is we have an election mm-hmm. coming up mm-hmm. and the, the voice of the people needed to be heard. That was the argument that was made. Regardless of mm-hmm. whether President Trump is reelected or or Joe Biden is elected president, the the the, the whole basis of the argument right. is that the voice of the people needed to be heard. So are you um do you think that had the roles been reversed then that um the Democrats would have said, uh, nope, we're not going to even think about it? If, Well, like you said, I wouldn't have liked it. But as long as they stay consistent in how they're going to do it, you know, mm-hmm. precedent is important. Um, I don't think that because the Republicans do it. Now, if the Republicans go ahead and they go through with this and they they ram this nomination through, um, I'm willing to accept it. I may not like it, but I accept it. Now, Democrats, some of them anyways, have talked about stacking the court and adding justices and stuff. That's and, and getting really <laughs> Yes, uh, absolutely. That's a terrible precedent. Mm-hmm. Um, I would fight that. Uh, I would be very opposed to that. Now you're trying to make an institutional change. The biggest problem with this, and this is both sides, is that they're politicizing the Supreme Court. And they're trying to stack it to fill an agenda. But I mean, that is both parties do that, though, correct? And, then, and that's yeah. what I just yeah. said. Right. That's the problem is that both sides are politicizing it. And you need – the Supreme Court uh, has a few roles. One, they have to uphold that Constitution and balance the the powers of government. Well, i got to verify that it is constitutional if right. it gets brought to them. They're not supposed to. Dis- they're not supposed to write it. Right, and then they're supposed to uh, promote equality and protect individual rights. That that is what their job is. Now, when political parties get involved with this and they're trying to stack it, I remember uh, I just read Governor Nome said we're trying we're balancing we're balancing uh, the Supreme Court. And, and and with you know balancing the ideals, well, if six to three is a balance, there's a reason why we're suffering with our edu- South Dakota education system, because six and three is not a balance. We need to be looking for judges that are looking at the Constitution, looking at society, and and the direction our country is growing. Thomas Jefferson understood this. One of our founding fathers. And I think it's on his on his uh, um, where he's buried uh, on one of the walls. It talks about the fact that this is a living, breathing, growing document. So that, it, it should it be interpreted under the current societal standard? I think it has to be considered. Thomas Jefferson felt that it had to be considered. He likened it to a boy and his jacket. But when the boy became a man trying to put that boy's jacket back on, our founding fathers 
made sacrifices. It wasn't a perfect union they were forming. It was they were trying to form a more perfect union. And they set up standards uh, and goals to aspire to for equality and individual rights. We didn't have all those. Women couldn't vote. African Americans couldn't vote. There were a lot of there were they were a lot of them that were still slaves in states. It wasn't perfect, but they knew as time went on they needed a document that would grow and change with society, and it has. And the Supreme Court has played an important role in that. Um, those that are strict constructionists that say that this is what reads, this is how how it has to be. That's a flawed philosophy that goes against what our founding fathers uh, had intended. Yeah, but the, see, I'm intrigued because you can have scholars that look at those documents and come to the exact opposite conclusion. So how do we know who to believe? Well, that's why you need a balance. That's how you get that really good discussion. Anytime uh, I've been on a board and um, I, I've been in a leadership position on that board, I don't stack it with a bunch of people that think the same way as I do. Yeah, we could get a lot done. Shouldn't there be some foundation of truth uh, so, some standard that everyone can agree on before you actually try to come together? Well, I think it goes back to what I talked about before, balancing bal- balancing the, the, mm-hmm. the three branches of government. It comes down to promoting equality and ensuring individual rights. Those are all things that are inside of our Constitution and Bill of Rights. So I think that's your base. Does um, the Bill of Rights, um, is it written for the government or for the people? people like the the amendments first amendment who does that limit does it limit the people or limit government oh limits the government's ability to take your rights away right okay yeah i mean ultimately when it's protecting individual rights it's protecting the individual from the power of the state or federal government Mm -hmm. whatever however you however you want to interpret Mm -hmm. it but definitely that's what it's there for so is the assumption if it's not written down it is by default to the citizen rather than to the government as a responsibility? Well, I think... Is that an appropriate way to look at that? I, I think that, uh, yeah, you can word it that way. Uh, there's, you know, certainly when when our Supreme Court justices are interpreting things, I mean, there are a lot of things that our founding fathers couldn't anticipate. So I think that uh, you get instruction from our Supreme Court sometimes uh, I've seen it at the state level in our state Supreme Court, too, that, hey, this isn't addressed. Mm-hmm. If you want it uh, to be considered, then you must you need to write it into a law, then. write it into a law. Right. So I, I and I think the Supreme Court has done that over the years. Um, I I think that you when you have that balance of people on there, uh, I don't like calling them liberal and conservative judges. Um, I like having people from with different perspectives, different experiences, different walks of life, because you have these uh, conversations and you can engage and you build understanding. Scalia and Ginsburg, another great example of two polar opposites mm-hmm. on a perception-wise. Yeah, I mean, they had different styles. Um, well, they, they interpreted the same words. Yes. Very differently. Very differently. Mm-hmm. But in the end, their goal was the same, was to protect individual rights, um, they just they had a different way of going about it, a different vision. 
but it brought balance. Mm-hmm. And I think even Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, um, I have grown to appreciate him more and more over the years because I I think he truly uh, tries to be that more moderate voice that is is uh, looking at the big picture and trying to make sure that the Supreme Court does a good job. And I, I worry, like you said, when political parties get involved and try, they don't try to appoint good judges. They try to appoint people to achieve a particular agenda. And that's what I see happening in this case. Is it, you know, because that, that is the, the norm nowadays. That, that's what happens. The, the party in power puts in people that think like their party. In theory. I mean, obviously, when they, the confirmation hearings, they all hedge and, you know, they don't really talk about what they're going to say. It's more of a grandstanding time for the senators. Um, fun to watch. I mean, I, I watch it every time. It's fascinating to me. The process is in, amazing. Um, but both sides do this. Should we just accept that the party in power is going to push the people that uh, that believe the way they do and just that's the way it is and if we don't like it we need to elect people that think the way we do well that's exactly my point and why i'm running is because if you want something mm-hmm. different if you want someone that respects the process that respects the voice of the people I, here i am yeah um because i truly believe uh that uh the people come first uh, way before party, and I, I just, I, I just, I don't like playing that game. Uh, that, that's not something that's ever enticed me. It upsets me, and I think it upsets me the most because it drives people away from the process. I want people to be excited about their government. Mm-hmm. I want them to be excited about the people that represent them, and I want them to feel like the people that represent them. Listen to them. I mean, that's why I always make myself available. Somebody called me. They were doing an absentee ballot. They're in school right now. <laughs> and they called me from Maryland or New York. Um, anyways, they're, they're, they're going to college out there. And they called me, and I, I, I picked up the phone, and they didn't realize that they were going to get the actual candidate. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> and they're like, yeah. this is Dan the candidate? And I said, yes. Mm-hmm. I, I said, uh, how can I help you? And he goes, wow, I didn't think I'd actually get the candidate. Um, but that's how important the people of the state are to me. I mean, I've always been that way. I didn't change it when I decided to run for national office. I didn't change my phone number. Uh, I didn't come up with an office phone number. You're getting my phone number. Or you're getting my campaign director's phone number. And you're going to talk to uh, one or the other. Usually you're going to talk to me. Mm-hmm. And if I'm busy and I miss your call, uh, like the one that was just buzzing here just a <laughs> second ago, uh, when I'm done with this interview, I'm going to call you. Uh, because the only way you stay in touch with the voters is to give them access to you. Right. And it does get more difficult when you, you know, you get involved in more things um how do you i'm intrigued with this idea of trying to stay untainted by politics once you get in there and 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 i think it's probably hard to know how to do that until you're in there and then hopefully you just don't (laughs) don't go down that road but it feels like it's a really difficult thing based on 
most of the politicians that I've followed for most of my life. They all tend to go toward um, whoever pays them, or sorry, that's not nice, whoever funds different things they do. How in the world do we get away from that? One thing, that there was a, a senator, I think, from Utah. He wrote a book a couple of years ago, um, and or might have been representative, and he talked about the, the seat dues that are owed for committee chairs, for committee seats. And so what that said to me as just a citizen, and I'm not in politics, is everyone that's sitting in those chairs that are, I mean, that's how you get things done when you're on committees. Somebody is paying the bill, the, the due, the fee for that. I would love to know who's paying those bills and are they getting anything out of putting whoever is in that seat? Do they get any, any perks for that? Yeah, and I, I can't give you, I've heard this, you know, I, I've, I've heard the very same thing. I've heard how, how it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've not experienced that myself. Uh, but it, it's not uncommon to local politics either. A lot of the candidates that you see running, they may seem like they're down to earth or they're from, you know, they're just, you know, Joe Blow from here. But a lot of them have been groomed. Mm. Uh, they were groomed for running. Uh, they're part of a, a party system. Um, I, I could come up with a half a dozen of our current elected officials that were groomed and worked their yeah. way through. It's not by accident they're where they're at because they're a part of a, a well-oiled machine or system. Um, the way to avoid that is to elect people that have shown the ability to move beyond that. And I'm 46 years old. At this point, if I haven't uh, succumbed to it at this point, I'm not going to. <laughs> and as, like I said, it's not part of my DNA yeah. and who I am. Um, I, 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 I am, uh, I've certainly moderated myself over the years and, and, and <clears throat> found more constructive ways to work around, but I've always been one to challenge authority and never been one to shy away from it. And you can probably go back to my high school <laughs> teachers and they would probably tell you some of the same thing. Yeah. There's some that really love you and others are like, wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> Hurry up and leave. <laughs> so as a running with a D by your name, how do you win? in a red state like South Dakota. Well, certainly easier. Now, we have two seats and only one of them is available right now. Uh, certainly easier without COVID because I'm a, pe- uh, you know, like I said, I'm a mm-hmm. people person. I like to be out there, shake hands, knock doors, and that's not the reality of COVID. Um, but I think you, you just need to focus on the issues and what you're going to do for people. Sh- listen, uh, learn what's important, and then lead. And then you have to, you have to be able to show them that you've ha- you have a record of doing that. And you eliminate the labels. During this process, I've been asked that question many times. And the best way I can explain it to you is imagine for a second that I'm the Democratic governor of South Dakota. And when I left office, I left this state with a $127 million budget deficit. that resulted in devastating cuts to education and to our service providers that helped contribute to the financial struggles of many of our rural nursing homes that I raised taxes on small business owners in order to balance my overspending, dairy farmers, a variety of small businesses, that I left this state with two financial scandals, one of, one of them involving my, a member of my cabinet, costing the taxpayers millions of dollars, and the tragic loss of life. Would you elect me to the United States Senate? And the answer to that 
overwhelmingly is no. And when they say no, I said, then why did we send Mike to Washington, D.C.? Because that is his record as governor. So is your point there that because he has an R by his name, the record doesn't matter? Well, I think that, you know, when people don't, aren't, aren't paying attention, when people don't look at the person's record and they're just voting based on label, that's what happens. And that's why politics in Washington is a mess. That's why politics is a mess in general, because we're too fixated on labels. And we're, people can be motivated by fear. When you hear the rhetoric that's going on out there, it's always the liberal left or the far right. It's never about the people in the middle. And the people in the middle are far greater than either on, on, on opposite sides. And, but people are motivated by fear. And they'll see a Nancy Pelosi and they'll see a Chuck Schumer and they try and saddle you with that label. How do you not, though? It's just like on the right side. I mean, whatever McConnell says goes. So how do you not, how do you not just by default accept the mantle of the National Democratic Party? Well, once again, you have to look at the people that you're electing and pay attention to who you're voting for. Uh, you have to look for the people that are doing the right things that are listening to what you're telling them that you need and actually going and doing it. Now, that's my record. If you look at most of my legislation, you're going to see a wide range of different subjects of bills that I brought over the years. Um, the reason for that is, is that most of them came from constituents. Somebody who showed up at my store, called my phone and said, hey, Dan, I'm having problems with something. Uh, do you have time to sit down and talk about it? That's what you need to be sending to Washington. Uh, someone that's willing to sit down and do that. Doesn't matter if they're R, doesn't matter if they're D, doesn't matter if there's an I behind their name. It shouldn't matter. You need to put those people in office because those are the people that are going to work for you. And, it's, and we've had a long history in South Dakota of electing Democrats. For 40 years, nearly 40 years, two of those seats were held by Democrats. And the state did not go down in flames it did very well, and when we needed infrastructure, when we needed farm aid, when we needed uh, the Lewis and Clark water system, those Democrats were there to help out. The state retirement system in South Dakota that we brag about all the time started by a Democratic governor. There are a lot of good things that have happened in this state because of Democrats. That doesn't mean the Democrats own all of the good things but it does mean that both parties can have good ideas. And wouldn't it be nice to have a little bit of a balance and representation in South Dakota? Is the federal government too big? I think so. I think that there uh, are efficiencies that can be made. Um, I'm always resistant to drastic change because when you try to change things uh, and turn them on its head, there are a lot of consequences uh, well, you can't turn a ship really quick, so right. it's yeah, it's right. Same. So concept. I know people when they they always expect big change, but mm -hmm. I think that uh, there there are things that you can do, approaches that you can take to build efficiencies in government. I was part of that and peer as a, on the appropriations committee. I sat on a subcommittee called the Lean subcommittee, and Lean like thin, uh, lean yes, like thin, yeah, lean like thin, and Lean. What it does is it it's a 
it's an efficiencies process. It can be applied to anything, uh, whether it be your business, um, your, your budget at home, or uh, departments within state or federal or local government. And what, what it does is it, it brings all the players to the table, whether you're the, the, the person at the bottom of the rung to the top of the rung, you're all sitting together and talking about a process. And a real great example, and this is just a small one about the impact that lean can have, is my first year back in the legislature, back in 2017, the Department of Revenue came to us and they said, we're having a problem abiding by the state statute that requires us to get a person's vehicle title back to them in 30 days. So we said, well, you know, tell us about the problem. How many days do you think you need? We need, we need 45. So we passed legislation to extend the time so that they're not violating state law. At the end of session, the Appropriations Committee recommended that the Department of Revenue go through the lien process. They were a little hesitant and resistant to that process at, at, at the beginning. And they, it, it went over, uh, it just didn't end after one year. They kept working on it, and, and I believe they're still using it today and still go through this process uh, regularly. But for that one piece uh, of, of, of a process within state government, they came back the next year and said, guess what? On those titles, we're getting them back in 14 days now to the owner. Because that whole department, the people that handle that process for you getting your title back, sat down and started having a conversation. They figured out, that somebody made a change over here, which impacted this person's job. They made a change to counteract it, which impacted the next person's job down the line. And next thing you know, this title's hitting 26 desks before <laughs> it gets back. And they had never looked at the process. It, it's the great, it's the gr great example of government inefficiency. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, w one of the things that uh, you know, some of my more uh, conservative colleagues doesn't like is that the notion that nobody loses their job. If you're going to get true buy-in, you have to. People have to be reassured uh, that they're not going to lose their job. Is that not a lot of the cost, though? Personnel? Uh, not always. Uh, what I what, it can be, it can be because you can achieve fewer people working in state government through attrition. There are always retirements and 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 people that leave. And at that point, you can reassess that position and decide whether or not it's actually necessary. Oh, you need to fill it again. Yeah. Right. Um, we had a number of those in state government. And my, my philosophy always was, if it's been sitting open for a couple of years and you've been able to function, <laughs> let's get it. rid of it. <laughs> yeah. And if you really need it, come back and tell me why you need it. Mm -hmm. Because right now you don't. Uh, so, I, and why should I fund a position that now you're taking that money, transferring it out, and spending it on something that we didn't ask you to do? You can create those efficiencies. You can find, you can create efficiency in the process. You can uh, eliminate positions that aren't necessary anymore. When someone leaves, you can you can move people over into different positions and and, and doing different jobs and taking on additional responsibilities. If it's feasible, if it doesn't reduce the quality of the service that you're getting. It, it can be done. You know, Janklow did it uh, when he was governor. I don't know that it was as smooth as everyone would like it to have been. I don't know that every one of them was justified, but he certainly did reduce it. Um, his unfilled uh, 
FTEs when he left were just a little over 250. When Mike Rounds left office, we were funding 751 of those unfilled positions. Uh, FTEs, can't call them positions because it could be one FTE could be two positions, but hmm. uh, an FTE is a full-time equivalency. So it was money assigned that wasn't going anywhere because there was no person? It was money assigned to personnel for positions that were not filled. That's growth in state government. Mm. And unnecessary growth and growth that couldn't be justified. How do you fix that, though? Well, You just eliminate those positions? We tried to eliminate those positions. They took our bill and they they hoghoused it and reclassified a bunch of uh, people on the, the university campuses, and even though they were still working and still there, they weren't counted as FTEs anymore. And they go, "Look, we shrunk government," but they didn't really shrink government. Relabeled it. Yeah, they relabeled <clears throat> it. But you got to you you have to go after those things. You have to fight those fights. Mm-hmm. And I've worked in uh, you know in the Dugard administration too, and it was quite a bit different. And we were able to do some of those things and and, and make those cuts where we needed to. Um, the important thing is that you you when you create those efficiencies, can you take those same dollars and reinvest them and make them do more? And we did it with Medicaid in South Dakota. We didn't get a full Medicaid expansion. Governor Dugard wanted a full Medicaid expansion. President Trump was elected and they scrapped it. But in the legislature, we didn't give up on it. We didn't get a full expansion, but what we did is we went in there and we worked uh, with our medical community and we worked with the federal government and we worked with our Native American tribes and through some cooperative agreements and, 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 and some different efficiencies we were able to find, uh, we found a way to take the same amount of dollars that we were spending. We expanded the number of people covered by Medicaid. We expanded the number of doctors that could uh, get Medicaid reimbursement. And we increased the reimbursement by more than what the governor had recommended two years in a row. And that's the power of those efficiencies. And that was just by moving money around. Well, we didn't even have to move. We, we couldn't really move, move it positions around. around. We, 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 did the, we did the efficiencies by um, addressing some of our problems within the system. So uh, <clears throat> an example, uh, this is where the tribes come in. Uh, so Indian Health Services on the reservation, a lot of things that our, our Native people need they can't get in the healthcare system on the reservation. So they leave the reservation and they go to rapid, well, it's not rapid city regional anymore, but they go to the hospital mm-hmm. in rapid city. They go to, uh, Avira or they go to Sanford in Sioux falls. They, uh, they go to a major medical center. And a lot of times they go in through the emergency room, which is more expensive. And then that gets reimbursed by the state. Right. So the federal government, uh, is, 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 is responsible for uh, Native American health care. But when they leave the reservation, they become the responsibility of the state. And not only were some of the places they would go more expensive because they'd end up in an emergency room, which, you know, instead of a $300 bill, it's a mm-hmm. $900 bill. Um, there was a lot of this, this stuff going on. It costs the state a lot of money. So we, we, we worked out uh, referrals with our health care providers we make sure people get the health care that they need, although it would be better if they would actually have the, the health care they need closer to home. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a real problem. That's a separate issue. But um, then 
uh, it reduces our overall costs. And we worked with the federal government to get them to cover native health care no matter where they go to get it. Those Medicaid dollars are still sitting there now unspent. Now we can give those nursing homes a little more money that they need to, to operate, especially our rural health care facilities. We can give, um, we can increase that reimbursement so that doctors will actually take more Medicaid patients so people get seen. They get the care they need sooner, which also drives down the cost. A lot of times, if they can't get in, the problems get Let worse. It, fester. it, it mm-hmm. festers, it, it becomes a, a bigger problem, it costs more. Is it cheaper? to fill a cavity or to wait till it's a big problem, have to pull the <laughs> right. tooth and then replace it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's that type of mentality. Those are all ways that you can, that you can take those same dollars, reduce your costs, find those efficiencies, and then make those dollars go farther. Mm-hmm. And it benefits everyone and improves the quality of life. Is Joe Biden the best option? Huh. Well, yeah, I, 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 I'm not a hundred. I'm not going to say I'm a hundred percent keen uh, on on Biden, but the behavior that I'm seeing from our current president just isn't acceptable. If he is president, I will do my best to work with him and uh, appease, uh, you know, appease him from a business side of things. I think being a small business owner, being a chamber president. Um, there are things that we will have in common, a language that we can both speak and I will do my best no matter who's president. But I do think for the health of the country from a social standpoint, uh, that we have to have people that are willing to, to call out, uh, bad players that when someone's, uh, you shouldn't coddle racist groups you shouldn't entice them to act up and you should and encourage them to act in appropriate ways i have seen people act in ways i never thought they would act and it it's tough it's tough i think that there's a better way to be um it's how i've tried to conduct myself as a as a businessman as a community leader as a legislator, so it's hard for me to watch someone behave the way they did. That doesn't mean that Joe Biden behaved perfectly last night either. Um, You're talking about the first presidential debate yeah, last night. Yeah, you know, well, and, and just behavior in general, mm-hmm. but, you know, Biden wasn't perfect last night either. Um, that's, it was, it was really hard to watch. What's to be done about the unrest in the, in the cities around the country currently? It starts with acknowledgement of the, that there actually is a problem. Um, I know a lot of law enforcement, uh, and most of these people are good people wanting to do good things, wanting to help the communities that they live and work in. Um, that doesn't mean there aren't bad apples. It doesn't mean I haven't had bad experiences. I can't say that I've had the experiences that some communities have and that there is a long history of distrust in, in certain communities and ethnic groups with law enforcement, and there's reasons for that. That doesn't mean the people uh, that are patrolling their neighborhoods are all bad. It's just, <clears throat> once again, a lack of communication and the inability to sit down and have a conversation. 
Um, we have to uh, be able to do that. And uh, I want to help facilitate that. Is the answer to pull pull cops off the street? No, absolutely not. Um, <clears throat> there was a group that um, wanted to endorse me, and one of their things in their platform was defund the police, and I said, I can't let you do that. Hmm. Um, because that's one thing I don't believe in. And my great-grandfather and my grandfather both served as police officers. Um, my, my grandfather and my brother both in the military. My brother, I think, did military police for a while. Um, so I have perspectives uh, on both sides. I have friends that have been, you know, that are Native American that have experienced um, the, the bias on, on their side. And I've actually worked on a few projects where I've been trying to get help for a minority person. And I hear someone say, well, it's probably alcohol. They are native. Mm. And so you hear those inherent biases in there. So we have to recognize that they exist. And then we have to be, we have to be able to change that dialogue. Mm -hmm. And I want to be part of that solution. I, I think that, uh, our law enforcement, though, play a very important role in making that happen because you have to build that trust. The only way to do that is to make sure that they have the resources to be involved in the community in positive ways where they can have the, that positive interaction and impact to start repairing and building and to gain a better understanding of the people that they're serving. I think that uh, it's, it's a two-way street. Is profiling inappropriate? You know, I think we all do it subconsciously. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about minimizing that and and working hard to try and stay objective, uh, improving our training. Uh, I know, you know, South Dakota law enforcement training, um, these were questions that we asked when I was on the Appropriations Committee. Our law enforcement training goes to the DCI up in Pier. And, um, you know, we viewed the process. We watch it. Um, we follow up on it. We do the things that we, we should do. It doesn't mean that it's perfect. Um, it is nice that our, our training is centralized. <laughs> I right. think that, yeah. that it creates some consistency, mm-hmm. you know, and in a small state that works. I don't know if that, that would work everywhere, but for here it does. Yeah. Um, but we always need to continue to be asking those questions, and then we need to be reaching out to our communities and making sure that what we're seeing at the training level is, is manifesting itself at, at the community level. Too. Yeah. Well, uh, Dan Allers, where can people find out uh, information about you and uh, more info on the campaign? We're getting close to when you have to get, so I want to make sure that we can get that information in. Well, uh, they can always go to my website, dan uh, com. Go to my Facebook page. It's Dan Allers for U.S. Senate. That's Allers, A-H-L-E-R-S. That is correct. And they can follow me on Twitter, too. I guess if oh, there's you're people- Oh, you're a tweeter. I, 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 I tweet, too. <laughs> nice. I'm getting pretty good at it. <laughs> well, I appreciate you coming in. Um, come back. Well, anytime. I mean, I, this is fun. I, I mean, this this show is this what this is for. So, um, I'd love to have you back. And I mean, we could keep going, but you have places to be and people to see. So I don't want to hold you too much longer. But I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. Definitely. Well, I, um, I really appreciate you going up. in depth with this conversation and and uh, any opportunity. Um, yeah, I'm happy to come back. Absolutely. We'll do it. That'll be great. And who knows? Maybe before the election, you know, (laughs) or not. (laughs) This has been the interview podcast on the Y Milbank Podcast Network in Milbank, South Dakota. Uh, Thanks to Dan Allers for 
taking the time to sit down with us. That's danollers.com if you want to find out more. D-A-N-A-H-L-E-R-S.com. Like we always say during the political seasons here on the interview, do all your own research and then vote. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. See you later.